All right, thank you. That's a lot of high notes and a lot of words all in one little song here for Wednesday night. Plus, we had to do it sitting down on top of that. And, uh, but that's all right. You get to enjoy being seated. And uh, so take your Bibles and turn over to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. I've entitled the series, uh, Behold Your King Comes. And it's taken from chapter 9. Um, tonight is obviously the title for Behold, Your King Comes. It's taken from chapter 9 and verse 9. It says, Rejoice, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. For he is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the fall of an ass. You know, one thing that we can recognize is that our world is in such a terrible mess. And it's just all, all around our world is in such a desperate need. And um, what are we going to do about it? What is going to be done about it? I mean, um, everywhere we look, uh, the world's in, in a mess. We need a savior. We need a king. That's what we need. And kings have come and kings have gone. And one of the things about the reality about kings is kings are broken too. And they're not the answer. Earthly kings are not the answer to our problems. In fact, the, the answer to our problem is not going to come, come from someone who is in the same state, in the same brokenness, in the same mess, prone to the same problems of the curse that we live with. Um, we need a king that will come and rescue us. We need a king that will come and get rid of the war. We need a king that will come and heal diseases. We need a king that will come and overturn the curse. We need a king that will come and conquer death. We need a king that will come and um, bring justice bring, and, and make things right, put people in their place. And, um, and, and bring salvation. We, we need a king. And interesting, I think we are living in a day very similar to, to what I've been reading in my devotions from the book of Judges. We live in a day where there is no king to rule. And every man does right in their own eyes. And we may have a president. We may have kings in some places. We may have um, you know, political leaders. But they don't solve our problems. In fact, they're just as messed up spiritually and corrupt as we are. And um, that's been true going all the way back in the Old Testament. And um, they thought that maybe David would come and be, uh, you know, the answer to, uh, to, to uh, the need. Because it wasn't Saul. He, he failed. He blundered. He was head and shoulders over everybody else. He was, you know, a good-looking guy, but he was scared. Every time you find him, he's hiding behind some, something somewhere. Now, David, here comes this guy with courage. And he's going to be the man after God's own heart. And uh, he makes his mistakes. He builds his army. He, um, he, he fails as well. Solomon, you know, the one who means peace, who's now going to inherit this kingdom that David has raised and build a temple and a house for God. And he's going to have the wisdom that we heard about this Sunday, that people are going to come from all over the world to hear, uh, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And what does he end up doing? He ends up doing worse than all the others before him by bringing in the wives and bringing in the idols. So he, he's not the answer either. 
When we read verse 9 and we heard, Behold, your king, it reminded me of the passage when Pilate brought the Lord Jesus Christ among the crowd and said to the crowd, Behold, here's your king. And of course, he's draped with a robe. He's been scourged. His beard has been plucked out. He's been beaten across the face. He's got a crown of thorns over his head. And Pilate probably doing that in a way. Obviously, we see that. He was, he was trying to, to get to the point where they would release Jesus. But in fact, when he presents them and says, Now, well, we've done it enough. I'm going to wash my hands. And they say, Crucify him. So here the king came. And they killed him. They rejected him. And then a mystery was revealed. A mystery that if you're in... Um, uh, Brother Dozier's Sunday school class, he's going through the, the mysteries there, so you probably connect. A mystery that comes into play that was not necessarily seen in the Old Testament, but was hidden, and we live in the midst of that mystery. And one day, the king is coming, and Zechariah is going to record about the coming of the king. Zechariah chapter 9 and through verse chapter 14 is the last and final stage of the book of Zechariah. This section is marked by the word that is used at the beginning of the chapter, the word burden. You see down there in chapter 9 and verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach. This word burden is the Hebrew word masah, which means a load, something that is to be carried. If you notice, it's mentioned again in chapter 12 in verse 1. Look over at chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord. So the last section of the book of Zechariah is split into two burdens. One that starts in verse not chapter 9, verse 1, that goes to chapter 11. And the second burden starts in chapter 12 and will go to the end of the book. So these two burdens come as two loads that are on, the, on, on Zechariah that he needs to preach. Now, if you have a different version here tonight, the word maybe burden would be translated oracle or warning. An oracle or a prophecy that is given. Um, it's used several times in the, in the Old Testament as the word prophecy or oracle from God. It would be a judgment that would come that the prophet was to carry. Often the word of the Lord to the prophets was a heavy word, a heavy message. It was a message of woe. It was a message of warning. It was a message of judgment. It was a, it was a message of future coming um, uh, judgment upon either the nations of the world or upon God's people. And it was difficult to carry. That's why the word is burden. These prophets had this load that they had to carry. The book of Nahum starts out with a burden. The book of Habakkuk starts out with a burden and uses this word. Isaiah uses this word throughout his book with the prophecies that he receives. He uses this word, a burden. And Zechariah introduces his final two sermons, his final two message as a burden that he's got to carry. And it's a dangerous warning sign and a judgment. These two burdens were carried by Zechariah to Israel much later in his life. He was, he's an older man, long after the temple has been built. Remember in chapter 1 when we opened up this book, Zechariah is a young man. He's even referenced as a young man. So he starts out 
um, as, as a young prophet and he's given a strong message to keep building the temple. God has promises. God's going to keep his, his promises. Then he sees all of these visions, these eight visions over the period of one night and then he's given a message in chapter uh, 7 and 8 with some prophecies that we, we finished up with last. And then between chapter 8 and chapter 9, a period of, of time, probably 30 or 40 years goes by. Most Bible scholars have indicated that possibly this, this, these last two burdens that come in Zechariah's life come about 490 B.C. In fact, in the margin of my Bible, I have the date 487 B.C. 490 B.C. They all agree that the last chapters um, of this book are very different in writing style, in wording. There's no accompanying interpretations like there were in the first eight chapters. Some liberal scholars also saw this as proof, or they saw this as proof, that this was written by a completely different person than the first eight chapters because the style is so different. Well, there's a logical reason for that. He has a very different type of message that he's given with these final two burdens. They're going to be very heavily prophetic in the future. And on top of that, he's in a very different stage in life. When you're in your 20s, and how you present things, and when you're in your 60s, you present things very differently. You think through very differently. And so there's a different stage in life, and because of that, there's a different demeanor. Um, part of possibly the dating method of some of this, showing that it's maybe much later, is in chapter 9 and verse 13, the country or the nation of Greece is mentioned. Does anybody who is a history buff know what happened in 490? B.C. in Greece. There was a famous battle between Darius I and the Athenians. There was an invasion by the Persians under Darius I. He invaded a bay called Marathon and invaded a city called Marathon and the great battle of Marathon against the Athenians and, uh, and the Persians were, were routed and defeated in 490, probably at the same time that Zechariah is receiving this word from the Lord. Ten years later, in 480 B.C., there is a famous battle again with Xerxes and the Grecians at Thermopylae. And there's a famous battle that takes place there, and that time the Persians win in that battle. So there is a constant war between the Persians and the Greeks during this time frame over world empire, and that's going to play a role in the prophecy that Zechariah is going to give in this chapter. So two burdens seem to have two different future implications. The first burden it carries by Zechariah in chapter 9, 10, and 11 fit a prophecy concerning the first coming of the Messiah. I just read for you a passage of Scripture that's clearly quoted in the Gospels as being a fulfillment of Jesus when He rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That's recorded for us in this middle of this prophecy. What leads up to His coming and what happens when the Messiah comes? These three chapters are going to talk about that in this first burden. The second burden, which comes from chapter 12, 13, and 14, fit a prophecy concerning the, the second coming of the Messiah. What will lead up to his kingdom? There will be an intense time of tribulation for Israel, and then God's people will re be redeemed, and a kingdom will come to this earth, and he will be a king. 
Now, the prophets in the Old Testament didn't see a first and second coming of the Messiah. They saw the coming of the Messiah as one event. And as we read through these chapters, you're going to realize sometimes you, you, you see these, the coming of the Messiah as, as just one event. But when we come to the New Testament and we look back, we realize that the coming of the Messiah is separated by two comings. He comes the first time and then he comes the second time. This is what we would call in Bible prophecy a complex event. A complex event, for, for instance, such as the Exodus. Did the Exodus happen on one day or did it happen over a period of time? The answer is yes and no. There was one specific day that Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness. That happened on the, after the 10th plague. That was the Exodus. However, the Exodus also took place over a 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness until they eventually make it to the Jordan River. What about the day of the Lord? Is the day of the Lord one day or is it a series of events? The answer is yes and no. The day of the Lord is often spoken of as one specific day when, when the Messiah will come out, Jesus will come out, there will be a battle and God will unleash his, his vengeance and wrath upon this earth and will wipe out the kingdoms of this earth. However, we also recognize that the day of the Lord is also a sequence of events that eventually is going to take seven, seven years. And is going to intensify into a greater wrath or a greater day of the Lord in the second part of what we see as the tribulation. And so that is considered a complex event. So the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament as a prophecy ends up being a complex event. Where it took place. Did the coming of the Messiah take place on one day or did it place, take place over a series of, of 33 and a half years? Oh yeah, it did. He came on Christmas Day. But he also came when he came out of the, the temptation and marched into the temple and decided to uh, turn, overturn the money changers. It also happened on Palm Sunday when he had, had presented himself as king. It also happened when he died upon the cross. And there, as, as Pilate said, behold your king. It also happened on Easter Sunday when he resurrected from the grave. It also happened on the Ascension Day when he went up. And it will also happen when he returns in like manner, just like the angels told the disciples in Acts chapter 1. So the coming of the Messiah is a complex event. Now the prophets in the Old Testament, they didn't see that. They didn't see that time frame and the sequence of those events as clearly as we do when we look back. Um, they seem to be talking about one event. Further revelation is needed to help us distinguish that there are two. We can now look back into Zechariah and we can see the sequences and the timings more clearly. Peter will tell that the Old Testament prophets looked into these things and wondered about them. And then Peter tells us that we have a more sure word of prophecy because we now have the close of the canon of Scripture. We know the beginning to the end. And we can see it as it plays out. Now I say that to you because when we read some of these chapters, you can get confused to say, is that happen at the first coming of the Messiah when he came in the first century? Or is that going to happen at the second coming of the Messiah when he comes one day in the future? And sometimes we have to distinguish. And sometimes right in the middle of a verse, it's talking about his first coming and then it'll talk about his second coming. 
This this has happened before. You remember when Jesus stood up in Nazareth and he was reading Isaiah 61? And you remember he started reading Isaiah 61? In fact, we could just, as a sake of it, turn over to Isaiah 61. I think when we come to these places, it's good for us to understand because we're talking about prophecy, and prophecy can be so confusing. But Jesus helps us to interpret prophecy in the way he uses it. Jesus got up in Nazareth and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek and hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim at liberty the captives and to open the prison to them that are bound. And he stopped. He didn't read the next verse. Because Jesus sat down. And notice there's not a period at the end of verse 1. There's still a sentence going on. Jesus sits down at the middle of that. This day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your ears. That's the first coming. The reason Jesus didn't finish the verse and say that is because he he doesn't accomplish the next part of the sentence in verse 2 until he comes the second time. To proclaim the accepted year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our Lord to comfort all that mourn. And so Jesus right here distinguishes and he's helping him. Hey, this is happening right now. But the further of the prophecy is going to happen again when I come later in the future. Right? And that's going to take place in, Isaiah, in Zechariah chapter 9 because you're going to see first and second coming events that are going to be interesting. Now this chapter is going to talk about two kings and two kingdoms. Uh, chapter 9 is going to be dealing with the judgment for the future, particularly surrounding two individual world leaders and their conquer- conquest. The first king and the conqueror is mentioned in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. His army is mentioned in verse 8. And I will encamp about my house because of the army, because of him that passed by. So him is the one who's in charge of this army. That's the first conqueror and the first leader. The second conqueror and the second leader is mentioned in verse 9 down to verse 17. Verse 9 introduces, Behold, your king comes. Verse 10, His dominion shall be from sea to sea. Um, So, let's look at these two leaders tonight. And uh, as we look at them, um, it's going to pull out some some history here because of seeing some of the prophecy and some of what's going on. So, I put this map up here, but I'm going to read through the first eight verses for you just quickly this evening. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be towards the Lord. And Hamath also shall border thereby Tyrus and Sidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed, and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall, be, shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron as a Jebusite. 
And I will encamp about my house because of the army, because of him that passed by, because of him that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now I have seen with my eyes. So that ends the first section here. So what we're going to be reading and what we read here is we are reading a map and a conquest. Location names are highlighted. The way this, these verses read is that there is an army and a king marching down a map from one place to the next. Locations of the conquest, cities of Hadrach, Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and finally Judah and my house. This is a military conquest that's happening here. Now, I have seven commentaries on Zechariah and two outside sources, so notes on Zechariah, uh, seminary notes. That's nine in all. Of the nine, I have all of them but one that do not mention the conquest of Alexander the Great. One pastor stated that he had 13 commentaries on Zechariah and all of them point to these first eight verses to Alexander the Great. One current BJU professor in seminary, Dr. Timothy Berry, states that he does not seem to be convinced that it has to be Alexander the Great, but there are some interesting similarities to what Alexander does to this map. So is this going to be talking about Alexander's conquest of the Middle East? From the vision of Daniel and from the world Gentile powers, which includes the, the nation of Greece under Alexander the Great, and the striking similarities in these verses, I believe that we can assume that Zechariah is seeing the conquest of Alexander the Great in, in about 150, 175 years from his date. Um, what we can be dogmatic is, is that this conqueror becomes a type of what God is going to do with clearly marked future king who is going to portray, be portrayed from chapter, verses 9 down to the end of the chapter. If God did it once with one king, he can easily do it with another king. So if we're talking about in these verses the conquest map of Alexander then we're looking at, um, we're looking at a, a future prophecy of what's going to happen in the Middle East from Zechariah's standpoint. And when we look back to the past, it seems to match up very similar. So if you see this map, I know it's kind of small here for you, um, but there's some place names, Hamath, Damascus, Sidon, Tyre, there's Jerusalem. This next map here is actually a conquest for, um, uh, of Alexander's conquest of the known world. He was 20 years old when he became king, and in 10 years, by the age of 30, he had created the largest world empire to have ever existed at that moment and at that time. Only took him 10 years, prime of his life. And the majority of what he ended up doing is he ended up Obviously, eventually ending down in Egypt, that was a main portion. But he conquered the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. He set his final capital in Babylon, conquered Babylon as well. But he ended up coming down through this area and marching through. And his, um, his conquest of marching through matches very similar to the named places in order that is mentioned in this chapter. 
Now, if you look at just verse 1, and I know some of you that you may, you may want to read some history about some of this. You may like, um, like some history. You may know a lot about uh, the Greek Empire and, um, and Alexander the Great and, and some of that. But some of these names in, in these places, Hadrach, Damascus, some have indicated that Hadrach was probably somewhere around modern-day Aleppo, which is northern Assyria. Um, and uh, Damascus, we know where that is. That's in Syria today as well. It was one of the capitals for uh, the Assyrian Empire. It was an important place. Uh, these cities become cities that are conquered, and God is orchestrating the overthrow, and everyone that sees it, it says here that, um, that the eyes of men at the end of verse 1 are going to look, and when these things happen, they're going to clearly know that God is the one doing this. The city Hamath is mentioned in chapter 2. This is a region around the border of modern-day Israel and Lebanon, not far from Damascus. The very next two cities in chapter 2 is Tyre and Sidon. Though they be very wise, though Tyre build herself up as a strong and she heaped up silver and gold in the streets, but the Lord is the one that's going to cast her down. He's going to smite her power in the sea and he will devour, devour her with power. Um, the conquest of Tyre by Alexander. It's interesting, Tyre, the city of Tyre was a self-fortified city that was built actually out in the bay. It had been a fortress um, that had not been conquered before. Josephus actually documents for us the conquest of this fortified city in the Mediterranean. It was the seat of the Phoenician Empire, the ancient land of Queen Jezebel. The literal meaning of the word Tyre means rock. It was a fortress rock built out in the ocean. It literally was known for its ability to stand any army. The Assyrian king tried for five years to besiege it and conquer it. He could not. Nebuchadnezzar spent 13 years trying to conquer the city of Tyre, but he could not. History records that Alexander the Great besieged the city for seven months. He used his engineers and his army along with boats to build a land bridge of stones from the city to the, uh, from the land to the city. And he did it in seven months what no person was able to do before him. And he burned the city to the ground. Bible verses here, the Bible verses here in verse 4, it was the Lord that did that. It was the Lord that did it. And yet we know from history that it was Alexander that did it, but God was using him as a tool. The next few cities that are listed down here are all Philistine cities. Verse 5, Ashkelon, Gaza. I don't know if you know where Gaza is. Anybody heard about that? Ekron uh, um, and Ashdod. All of these are Philistine cities. We don't have record of all of these cities outside of the Bible being conquered by Alexander the Great, but we do have record of Gaza being besieged by Alexander for five months. Josephus records that he killed 10,000 people in Gaza, slaughtered them, actually took his name. We have a record. The name of the king was Battis. Alexander took Battis and he took him, tied him to a chariot, and rode him through the city until he was dead. That's recorded to us in history. Interesting that the verse down here that says here in verse 5, that shall be ashamed, and the king shall perish from Gaza. 
and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited, and a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. A foreigner, the ESV reads, a mixed person, a mixed people. In other words, a foreigner is going to dwell in their city, the pride of the Philistines. There's a strange and yet gory picture in verse 7, and I will take away his blood out of his mouth and the abomination from between his teeth. Um, the Philistines were known for their sacrifices in which they will drink the blood of the animals that they'd offered. Then they would eat the raw flesh and dance to their music in honor of their gods, such as Dagon. Remember, there's a story of Dagon. And so here they are, you know, wild and crazy with blood dripping out of their face and raw meat upon their, you know, face and dancing as in, in such a terrible way. Can you imagine what was happening to Samson when he was tied between uh, these two pillars and the Philistines were doing what they were doing and, um, and all this. This is considered to God an abomination. God says the blood that's coming out of their mouth and between their teeth is going to be the purge of the land that God is going to do because of their detestable acts. This reminds me of the Amorites who made human sacrifices and made God mad and angry. And he said, I'm going to have to purge the land of these people, men, women, and children. It's hard to read some of those verses. But when you recognize some of the cruel and terrible things that were being done by these people, generation after generation, human sacrifices and these abominations in God's eyes, it was not only it, it happening in God's, God's land and in God's people, just like the anger of God when he looked down in Noah's day and he saw the people doing the things that they were doing and in Sodom and Gomorrah saw the thing. It, God must act when he sees this type of debauchery. Verse 8 mentions the city of Jerusalem, talks about Zion um, and, uh, and, and Judah. And uh, that, verse 9, mentions Jerusalem too. Josephus, interesting that he records that the conquest of Alexander, he intended to come to Jerusalem and destroy the Jewish city as well. He records that the high priest ordered all of the Jews. Now, this is remember, this is extra biblical uh, material. This is all outside of the Bible. But interesting that he records that the high priest ordered all the Jews to bring sacrifices and plead with God to rescue them from Alexander. Then the high priest took all of the priests, they dressed in their finest white clothes, and they marched out of Jerusalem by the thousands to meet Alexander and his army on the road. Alexander is said to have been in awe at the procession of hundreds and thousands of Jewish priests marching down from Jerusalem, unafraid of his army. He stated that he had seen a dream while in his tent of this event, and it moved him so that he got off his horse and saluted the priest and returned, uh, retreated from the Jews and treated them with kindness. And he left and went to Egypt and didn't touch Jerusalem at all. In fact, he returned to Jerusalem to make it a city that he would come and basically um, use it as a vacation spot. And he let the Jews go. That seems to be what is mentioned in verse 8. When this army that has come, it passes through. But God will encamp around the city and he will protect the city and they will not be burned. What does this teach us? What do these things teach us? This is just another map telling you 
or the Philistine cities are um, in the southern end. So we started all the way up in, into Assyria, way up here, and he came down through Phoenicia and Tyre and Sidon, ended up down here. Alexander made his trip to Jerusalem with the intent to burn it to the ground when he sees this story, and then he decides not to, and then he finally finishes his campaign. So what does this teach us? This teaches us that the land is being purged as God said. He promised that this would happen, and it takes place just like he promises that it will happen. God was using a Gentile king to purge the land of its wickedness, and yet he sovereignly protected Jerusalem. So here this evil king that comes marching through and, and purging everything with war, and yet he protects the nation of Israel. Second here, God always judges sin. Joel chapter 3 mentions that Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia had all acted harshly towards God's people by selling them into slavery and mistreating the people of God. So God tells Joel that because of this one day, God, the nations of Tyre and Sidon and Philistia will be recompensed for their evil upon his people. Zechariah is prophesying of the vengeance that God will take and God did take upon the enemies of Israel. God judges sin. These nations were being judged because they had sinned against God. Pride is mentioned as a sin. Self-reliance is mentioned as a sin. Abominations are mentioned in these verses. In other words, God holds these nations accountable for their actions just like He held Israel accountable for theirs. So you don't need a Bible in your language for the wrath of God to come upon you. Philistines didn't have a Bible in their language. And yet God held them accountable for their sins. And that's exactly true of our day today. Yet we need to get a Bible in their language so that they can know there's a God who has, who has pardoned them and given them forgiveness if they will just repent. And how can they hear except a preacher go? So it's interesting. Then the last thing here, I mentioned this as well. The conquest of Alexander in the Greek Empire laid the groundwork and prepared the way for the coming Messiah. God used Alexander and the Greeks to prepare the world for the coming Messiah. The Greeks built Greek cities all over the Middle East. They spread the Greek culture all over the Middle East. They brought the Greek language all over the Middle East. They united the known world from east to west with paved uh, the way for the Romans and the combination of the Greek and Roman roads and cultures and laws set the stage for the scene when Jesus is born in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. All of that happens and is set the stage because God is working. I like what one, um, uh, one man mentioned that all of history is actually God's story, his story. And everything that plays out, plays out because God is orchestrating it in an event. He's the one that turns the clock. He rises up kings and he brings down kings. He's the one that does that. Now let's mention just in the last portion of this um, uh, book in, uh, in chapter in verses 9 through 17. I already read verse 9 for you. It talks about rejoice, the very first word that is used. Rejoice greatly. So shout for joy. I like the way um, we've, we've used this phrase a few times where Zechariah is saying, put, put your happy pants on. Okay. 
Between chapter 8 and uh, verse 8 and verse 9, there's a period of several hundred years that takes place before one king falls off, that's Alexander, and another king comes on. In other words, Zechariah says, there's something to sing about. The king is coming. Just as Alexander rode his white horse through the Holy Land conquering, one day the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem and there will be rejoicing. You see, when Jesus comes, the anticipation is that people will sing and shout for joy. The word shout here means make a lot of noise. It can be used of, um, of, of the tambourines that were being smashed. You know a little kid, give a little kid your pots and pans and tell them to walk around. That's a lot of noise. That's what Zechariah is saying. When your king comes, make a lot of racket because it's going to be something worth singing about. Remember the Jewish people all dressed in black last week, weeping and mourning over the wailing wall with no peace, no peace in the Middle East, no peace in Jerusalem. But when the coming Messiah comes, he says, hey, take all of that drab clothes, all of that black, all of that weeping, and let's sing some songs of rejoicing because the king is here. Behold, your king comes. And then he describes what kind of character he's going to be. He's going to be just. He's going to be just. The word just means right. This means he's going to act in a right manner. It's the same word that was used of Job who was a just man. He did what was right. Alexander was not a just man. He was a cruel, violent, he drugged people through the streets until they were dead type of person. Second Samuel 23 and verse 3 says of the throne of David, a ruler will rise over men whose righteousness, who holds dominion through the reverence to God. Jeremiah says, see the days are coming when I will rise up to David, a righteous branch and he shall reign as king. He's going to be a righteous, a just person. He will bring salvation. The word here reads, he will show himself to be a savior. Luke 9, 56 says, he came to save people, not to destroy them. He will not only be a savior bringing salvation, but he will also be lowly and humble, or we could use the word meek. Not like Alexander, who was a proud, arrogant man, but this man is going to be humble, meek. He's going to be in control. He will be riding upon an ass, a colt of an ass. His conquest will be very different than any other conqueror who's come before. You see, riding on a colt shows him to be not a normal ruler. Matthew 21 records this event. In fact, all four Gospels record the coming of the triumphal entry of Jesus. But only Matthew points out that he will bring both the mother donkey and the colt of the donkey with him. In other words, when Jesus goes through the entry, uh, entrance of Jerusalem, he has two donkeys, the mom and the baby. And when he chooses to get on one of them, he doesn't get on the mother donkey, he gets on the baby one, the colt of the donkey, and he rides in. Um, he does not ride into Jerusalem in a triumphant way. Did you know that? We call it the triumphal Entry of Jesus as they wave palm branches. But you know he's not coming as a conqueror? He comes into Jerusalem humble, meek, lowly. Not as a victor, but as a victim. As a lamb 
led to the slaughter. We call it the triumphal entry, but that's not what's taking place there. The prophecy stops at that point, and we have to return one day. He will have to return one day as the victor. And it says here, he will come for you. The phrase means he will come for your benefit. This is going to be a good thing when he comes. He will come riding on the donkey, and he is coming unto thee, or for thee. He is coming for your benefit and for your good. And this is worth singing about. And so as we, we just see this verse, the rest of the chapter, verses 10 down to verse 17, are going to talk about his second coming. So verse 9, his first coming, the rest of the chapter talks about his second coming and what that's going to look like. And he's going to set up a kingdom and he's going to make up, he's going to bring victory to Israel and to the Jews. He's going to bring peace in his mouth. He's going to set prisoners free by his covenant. And he's going to, um, he's going to cause them to rejoice. He's going to cause Judah and Ephraim and Zion to be victors. He's going to bring them in like sheep and he's going to be their God. And he's going, to, he's going to bring them in as crowns in his jewel, as it says at the end of verse 16 and into verse 17. Notice what verse 17 says as we end. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Even the corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. The world is going to flourish with all kinds of blessings in this world. So, here at the last portion of this chapter, we see the first and second coming. The first coming, only one verse. The second coming from verses 10 down to 17 is going to take place. And he's going to continue uh, on with some of this in chapters 10 and 11 as well, seeing what's going to take place when the Messiah comes. Father, I pray that you'd help us tonight. Thank you for the study that we have in God's Word. Thank you that even when we read in history, um, like the conquest of, of Greece. Even though we call that the silent years between the Testaments, you had a plan, you had a purpose, you were preparing the world for the coming Messiah. And even though there's been 2,000 years that's, that's happened between um, your first and second coming, you are preparing the world for that time when you will come again. And you rise and fall, kings and kingdoms, and you're not caught off guard by the chaos of this world. And your prophecies are going to be fulfilled, just as they were under the first coming, and they will in the second coming. And this is good news for the Jewish people. This is good news for, for a land, a Middle East, that is filled with war and fighting and turmoil in some of these exact same places along the border of Lebanon and, and Israel and Syria and Damascus and uh, Aleppo and Beirut and Gaza. And just constant conflict has been. But one day, uh, you're going to come back and you're going you're gonna to solve the Middle East problem with one word. And uh, Lord, we're thankful that we can trust your promises and that you have a plan. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you. Have a good week. We'll see you on Sunday morning.